You are listening to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Wine-Banks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations with experts on various issues facing our country today. This is Victor Shi. I'm going to be an incoming freshman at UCLA, and I'm also the youngest Joe Biden delegate here in Illinois. Jill, can you give our audience a brief introduction about who you are? Sure. I'm not the youngest uh, Biden delegate, but I am a Biden delegate. I am also the author of The Watergate Girl, which I hope you will all read, and a former Watergate prosecutor, former general counsel of the Army, former COO of the American Bar Association, um, have been involved in um, sexual assault through the military uh, on a committee that I looked at, and many other topics. And I am now the proud co-host with Victor of this podcast and very excited to be welcoming a terrific guest today. Mm -hmm. And as always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. Today, we could not be more excited to be talking with Professor Leah Lippman from the University of Michigan Law School for part two of our Supreme Court debrief installment. Last week, we talked to Professor Jeffrey Stone from the University of Chicago Law School about the LGBTQ and abortion decisions. And today, we'll be talking about the DACA case, which is otherwise known as the Department of Homeland Security at all versus the University of California at all, um, as well as the... Um, uh, case involving uh, the contraceptive coverage, which is the Little Sisters of the Poor versus Pennsylvania. And then finally, we'll be taking a broader look at where the Roberts Court stands on a crucial issue for American democracy, voting rights. Um, Professor Littman teaches and writes about constitutional law, federal post-conviction review, and federal sentencing at the University of Michigan Law School. In addition, she is one of the co-hosts and creators of Strict Scrutiny, which is a podcast that I listen to um, when I have nothing to do, and a podcast about, and it's a podcast about the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, Professor Littman, was also part of the litigation team in the Garcia versus United States case, which was um, one of the challenges to Trump's rescission of the DACA program and was on the brief for Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt, a case that we talked about in earlier episodes of intergenerational politics with um, Professor Jeffrey Stone and Sylvia Tamarkin. So thank you so much for being here, Professor Littman. Thanks for having me. Of course. So um, I'll hand it off to Jill to talk about our first topic today, which is the Supreme Court case involving the contraceptive coverage under the Affordable Care Act, which is otherwise known as Little Sisters of the Poor versus Pennsylvania. Thank you, Victor. Thank you, Leah. And what I want to start with is just a brief description to set the stage for questions um, about what Little Sisters is about. And as Victor said, this is a... Um, case that challenged part of the Affordable Care Act that provided cost-free coverage for contraception. Um, and there was, when the law was passed, an exception for religious institutions. What this case does is bring that exception to a broader population. It expands that coverage and says that um, not just religious institutions like churches can be accepted, but basically that anyone who claims a um, moral or religious objection to contraception can be exempted from providing that coverage to their employees. Um, so first, let me say, did I get that pretty much correct in one sentence? Yes, I think so. There are a few interlocking regulations and statutes that I might allude to as we talk, but yes, that's right. Right. I, it was, you know, as a lawyer, it's always hard to get it down to something that really Concise, yeah. just says it all in one sentence. But uh, I think for purposes of our discussion, that, that should do it. So 
um, you know, let's look at the big picture. You know, what are the consequences of this decision for someone who cannot afford contraception and needs that protection? Uh, what does this mean? So as the Trump administration estimated it, the current decision will mean that somewhere between 75,000 to 120,000 women will no longer be able to get contraception coverage through their employer-sponsored health insurance programs. So that's a significant number of women who will have to go out onto the open market and obtain some kind of health insurance coverage for contraception if they would like it, or just pay out of pocket expenses for contraception. So that's just by the numbers, the effects of the decision. Um, but it's possible that this decision will have more far-reaching consequences down the road, given that the court seems open to the possibility that other statutes aside from from the Affordable Care Act also require exemptions for entities with religious objections. So maybe we should talk a little bit more. I was going to go on to another question, but just so that it's clear, um, who got exempted here and what kind of uh, people or employers might be uh, exempted? Uh, it, this actually does relate to there are other cases this term that have said uh, for example, employment discrimination laws don't um, apply to religious organizations, um, and some other cases that expanded on religious exemptions. So could you talk a little bit about that specifically? Sure. So under the Trump administration's regulation, which is what the court upheld against the challenges that the plaintiffs had been successful bringing thus far, um, any entity who says we have either a religious or moral objection to providing contraception can exempt themselves from having to offer their employees insurance coverage for contraception. They can also exempt themselves from having their third-party plan administrator or insurance company offer coverage to the employees at the federal government's expense. Because under the Obama administration, they had created an accommodation process for entities with religious objections. And they said, look, if you have some religious objections to offering contraception, all you have to do is tell us the federal government or tell your insurance provider that you don't want to pay for contraception coverage. And then the third party plan administrator or insurance company will offer the contraception coverage at their expense, not the employers, or the federal government will reimburse them. So that's kind of the state of things now. And was there any way to evaluate the validity of a claim of moral or religious uh, exemption? Was there any standard set? Um, not in the decision itself. The regulation that the Trump administration promulgated provides some guidelines about what they mean by a religious or moral objection, but it's pretty capacious. And in the hands of this administration, it's not clear that they would refuse anyone who asks for an exemption. Hmm. So in terms of the relationship between church and state, uh, what does this mean? Because this is not necessarily church related. I mean, um, these rules apply to for-profit corporations, not just to, for example, I mean, it, it, the title of this case is Little Sisters of the Poor, which is clearly a religiously affiliated organization, but it would equally apply to any corporation. So what does that mean? 
So it could apply to a restaurant or, you know, any storefront that says, you know, we are owned by people who have a religious or moral objection to contraception coverage as to what this means for the relationship between the church and state. I think what it means is that religious objections or entities with religious objections get to opt out of state imposed rules. You mentioned the non-discrimination cases where the Supreme Court said federal law prohibiting discrimination on the basis of disability or on the basis of sex cannot apply to religious schools. So therefore religious teachers lack the protections of civil rights and anti-discrimination statutes. So the combined effect of these decisions is I think to allow entities or individuals with religious objections to civil rights statutes or non-discrimination statutes to largely opt out of them and free themselves from these generally applicable rules that apply to everyone else. Before I turn this over to Victor for another question on the same topic, um, one thing you just said I want to ask about, which is you said so religious teachers, but it was my understanding that um, it was any teacher in a religious school. So if I'm teaching English or French in a Catholic school, um, the protections also don't apply to me, even though I am not engaged in religious education. Is that correct or? So it actually depends on what the actual job responsibilities of the teacher are. So although the teachers in these cases, Our Lady of Guadalupe versus Morrissey Beiru, were fifth grade teachers, they did teach some secular subjects, but because they had the children for all subjects, they were also generally responsible for instilling religious faith and religious teachings. That being said, the reasoning of the court's decision places a high premium on the fact that the schools, the employers, seem to describe these teachers as having some religious function. So even if the teachers are teaching purely secular subjects, if the school says, well, yeah, but we also expect them to convey our religious values and religious faith and church documents say we regard teachers even as secular subjects as you know the front line of the faith then yes this decision very likely applies to them as well thank you yeah yeah, and, yeah so i guess like speaking more long term as to where the court falls with this particular issue of contraceptive mandates and kind of speaking about um you know, how the court ruled. So in the case, Justice Kagan and Justice Breyer, who are both part of the liberal block of the court, joined the majority in this decision, um, which is a 7-2 decision. Um, so I guess, why did these two liberal justices join the majority to get rid of the contraceptive mandate? So they actually joined their own opinion, which was reasoned quite differently from the majority's reasoning, as well as the concurring opinions reasoning. And the concurring opinion was from Justice Gorsuch and Justice Alito. Um, and here is where I might have to allude to the other laws that are potentially relevant to this case. So one of the issues that was presented in this case, but the Supreme Court didn't actually decide, is whether another statute, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, actually required as a matter of law the exemptions that the Trump administration offered by regulation. Mm -hmm. That is, let's say Joe Biden is elected in 2020 and Joe Biden rescinds the Trump administration regulation and reinstates the Obama era regulation that mm -hmm. required 
entities with religious objections other than churches to raise objections to their insurance providers or the federal government, then Justice Gorsuch and Justice Alito would have said federal law prohibits that accommodation. You have to exempt them full stop. What Justice Kagan and Justice Breyer decided is, well, the agency has the authority to determine not only what healthcare services employer-sponsored health plans have to offer, but also which entities are exempt from those requirements. But Justice Kagan and Justice Breyer also noted that they were not determining whether the Trump administration regulation was what's called substantively reasonable, whether it made the best sense of all of the evidence before the agency in light of the costs and benefits of the rule. And in fact, they wrote separately to suggest that even if the statute permitted the agency to exempt some classes of employers from this obligation or mandate, the way that the Trump administration did so and the breadth of the exemption might ultimately be substantively unreasonable. So they just rejected the specific basis that the Court of Appeals had invalidated the regulation on while preserving the possibility that it was still invalid on other grounds. Got it. So I mean, so um, I guess taking, going from there, like to what extent do you think this decision is predictive of future cases involving birth control and even um, abortion under this Roberts Court? I think that the decision is a strong reminder that there is a clear majority of the court that is hostile to imposing regulations that require access to women's health care, whether that is contraception or abortion. And they are willing to allow administrations like the Trump administration to undo or undermine those regulations. And it's also very possible that they are willing to strike down requirements that more progressive administrations or more progressive Congresses impose. So again, even if there's a Biden administration in 2020, it might be that the conservative majority of five says, well, actually, you have to exempt any entity with a religious objection to the rules you want to impose or reimpose. Yeah, yeah. So before I hand it off to Jill, another issue that's gotten some discussion lately is the Affordable Care Act and how this decision stands in the broader context of the Affordable Care Act with the Trump administration now kind of saying that they want to um, challenge it in the court. So do you think this decision of the case is anything about the future of the ACA as well? It's hard to know what it might say about the future of the Affordable Care Act as a whole. Obviously, the court has on its docket for next term, the 2020-2021 docket. Um, the challenge to the entirety of the Affordable Care Act in which Texas and some other Republican-led states are arguing that the 2017 Republican amendments to the Affordable Care Act, which zeroed out the penalty for failing to purchase health insurance, rendered the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional and requires the court to invalidate the full Affordable Care Act, including the Medicaid expansion, the protections for pre-existing conditions or protections for people with pre-existing conditions, the contraception mandate, and a host of other regulations as well. Um, but it's it's unclear if this particular case provides any clues about that one or others. Yeah, so now um, we want to shift into our next case, which is the DACA case um, or the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals case. And I'll let Jill um, begin with that case. Before I actually get to the DACA case, um, one thing you just mentioned, the Religious Restoration Act, um, if that were to be um, rescinded, amended, changed, um, 
would that protect some rights or give the Biden administration, in, if there is a Biden administration, more opportunities to protect certain rights? Uh, it very well could. Um, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is a statute, which means other Congresses can amend that statute. Now, that does not eliminate the possibility that this conservative Supreme Court would say, well, actually, the First Amendment of the Constitution requires those exemptions, even if a statute no longer does. Um, but that would require some additional retooling of existing law. Okay, so a little bit of uh, optimism there. So yes. turning to the DACA case in which you were personally involved, um, I, you know, as Victor said, this program was set up by the Obama administration to protect children who came to America undocumented, and it allowed them to have certain protections, including getting a green card uh, and not be deported. Um, and so that has been a primary target, I would say, of the Trump administration and things that they have tried to do to undo that. Uh, so now we get to the point where we have this lawsuit uh, that says, um, as a result, well, let me have you tell us, what was the 5-4 decision, rather than my summarizing it, if you can keep it sort of short. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, what the case says is that the Trump administration's initial memo by Acting Secretary of Homeland Security, Elaine Duke, is not sufficient to allow the Trump administration to rescind the DACA program. In particular, it violates a statute that regulates administrative agencies' decision-making, and that statute prohibits what are called arbitrary and capricious administrative decisions. And the court says the memo rescinding the DACA program was arbitrary because it didn't consider other alternatives besides ending the DACA program wholesale. And it also did not engage with or evaluate the reliance interests that DACA recipients, their employers, and the community and the country developed around the DACA program. Right. So it was really a, a Administrative Procedures Act decision and doesn't really uphold the DACA program. So that's still at risk. Um, and it seems to me there's some similarities here to uh, in this decision. The census decision is the same thing. It's, yeah, you might be able to do this, but you can't do it in the arbitrary way that you did. And you, in that case, there was some evidence that they had been lying about the reasons for the change, you know, for trying to add a citizenship question. Um, which, of course, we're now seeing the administration trying again to interfere with the census by saying, well, we can only count people who are citizens in the census in terms of apportioning uh, congressional delegates. Um, so uh, the court didn't say that DACA was legal or that it wasn't legal. Um, obviously, the, even temporarily, this is great news for the dreamers. Uh, but what do you think it leaves in terms of the future of DACA? Is there anything we can read in this decision about whether DACA would be upheld or wouldn't be upheld? So three justices, Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, and Justice Gorsuch would have declared DACA illegal. Now, we don't know what some of the other justices would do if the case actually presented that question. Those justices 
went out and decided it anyway. So we know their views. I think that the 2020 election is extremely important for the future of the DACA program and DACA beneficiaries, because as you were noting, this decision is an administrative law decision, like the census decision, which basically told the administration, go back and lie better. This decision kind of said, <laughs> dot your I's and cross your T's and you know, do yeah. better, do your homework better if you are going to rescind the program. And in fact, it said, you know, we agree that you could rescind the DACA program as long as you follow the correct procedures. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very likely that if President Trump wins re-election in 2020, he will once again attempt to rescind the DACA program and put the 750,000 plus dreamers at risk of deportation. So the 2020 election is, I think, extremely significant for the future of DACA. And we haven't mentioned Justice Ginsburg's health. You know, in July, yeah. she disclosed she was being treated for a second round of cancer this year. And, you know, if she is no longer on the court, then this decision would have been five for the other way, upholding the rescission. Yes, we all, we've talked about the importance of um, both the election in terms of the Supreme Court and many other policies, but we've also talked about and wished uh, Justice Ginsburg yeah. all speedy recovery. Um, we all hope for her health. She's a fantastic justice uh, and has had a wonderful um, addition to the jurisprudence of America. So that is maybe one of the most important things about 2020 election is who will get to appoint the next Supreme Court justice because these cases on the 5-4 really depend on uh, if a liberal justice like Ginsburg is replaced by the Trump administration, yeah. that's for the rest of my life and probably even for Victor's life. Uh, that's it in terms of having um, justices who will uphold the kinds of things that we believe in. So thank you for mentioning that because we think it's really, really important. Um, so not unexpectedly, the reaction of the Trump administration uh, to this decision was, I, I want to read you something. He said, um, it was horrible and politically charged. And then he said, do you get the impression that the Supreme Court doesn't like me? So first of all, does that make any sense? Uh, I, I mean, in my opinion, a lot of what Donald Trump says doesn't make sense. But uh, even politically here, if he's been arguing all along that it's really important that you elect me so that I get to appoint the Supreme Court. If he's now saying the Supreme Court doesn't like me, even though I now have appointed all these new justices, why is that a politically good argument for him? Uh, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Can you make any sense of it? Um, I think what he's saying is something that we also saw from Republican senators, which is they understand what we were just talking about, which is with one more appointment, you know, the president replaces Justice Ginsburg or Justice Breyer, he would have a solid majority of five yeah. justices who will basically let him and his administration do whatever they would like. And so I think that that is really the idea he's channeling. You know, the justices he appointed, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch, would have voted to allow him to rescind the DACA program. They would have voted to uphold the Louisiana restriction on the abortion providers that would have closed two of the three clinics in the state. And so he's reminding people, these are the kind of justices that I appoint. Give me one more and let's think about all of the other things we can do. Yeah. Although we still have to remember and point out that Justice Roberts 
has now become a swing vote and has voted with the liberal justices on a number of things so that um, there is still some hope that there are people on the court who believe in precedent and who will believe in rational arguments and who will see through the phony information that is provided to back up actions of the administration. Um, at least we can hope that. Um, so Victor, I think you have some more questions. Yeah, so I wanna follow up on what the Trump administration is now doing with the DACA decision in particular. So as you may know, John Yu, who was the lawyer um, who infamously justified the use of waterboarding during the Bush administration, basically said that the DACA decision now gives Trump the power to enact policies that Congress won't. Um, and then in this bizarre Fox News uh, interview on Sunday with Chris Wallace, the president echoed that same point and said he'd be rolling out you know, these brand new immigration and healthcare policies because of the DACA decision. And um, just this week, the White House announced, um, as you know, going back to the census decision, um, quote, the maximum, to the maximum extent feasible and consistent with the discretion delegate to the um, executive branch, it will exclude undocumented immigrants from congressional representation in the census, which um, seems to be born again from that DACA case. And now it's not really a shock because of Barr's unitary executive theory as well. Um, so I guess, what do you think Trump, you and Barr um, think is in the DACA decision to give Trump the discretion to enact some of these policies? And if he does follow through on some of these immigration, health care, and census decisions, um, could it be challenged in the courts because the president may be um, like overstepping his powers? So it's hard to know exactly what the president in particular might be thinking the DACA decision does for the Affordable Care Act, because the you piece that you mentioned lays out what I think is a mistaken and incorrect interpretation of the DACA decision. But John Yu basically says, look, under the DACA decision, President Trump can decline to enforce some statutes, and then a later administration would find it difficult to unwind that non-enforcement policy, you know, like was true for the DACA um, uh, policy and attempts to rescind it. The president somehow gathered from that that he can undo the Affordable Care Act. You know, again, not at all clear how that would work or what he envisions being able to roll out as part of it. I do think it's extremely likely that any policy he attempted to implement, whether it's about immigration, the Affordable Care Act, or the census executive order you just mentioned is extremely likely to be challenged in court and could be. Um, the census executive order in particular seems to violate the constitution which requires an enumeration and apportionment for congressional seats of all persons. There are also a host of federal statutes that require similar apportionment or limit the powers of the president over the census. So violates constitution, statutes, you name it, and probably some statutes governing administrative procedures as well. Um, and it's likely that some states who stand to lose possible representatives could challenge that executive order. So I think it's likely that any policy that the president and the attorney general dream up based on the DACA decision or whatever else they're thinking about is likely to be challenged and quite likely successfully so. Yeah, we hope so. And now moving on to the last topic, which is something that has gotten um, a lot of attention recently with the devastating um, passing of Congressman John Lewis, who was um, at the forefront of the fight for racial justice and voting rights. And this is an issue that my generation, I think, is now more concerned about. And um, 
we want to look at kind of how voting rights falls in 2020 and beyond under the Roberts Court. Um, last week, we talked with Professor Jeff Stone about this issue, um, but then since then, the court declined to block a Florida law that would prevent felons from voting in the upcoming election, despite a referendum that amended the Florida Constitution to allow felons who have served their sentence to vote. Um, so the rule basically required felons to pay all fines before they could vote. and. Um, there's actually now an effort underway to raise money to pay those fines, but um, in the end, many felons won't be able to vote because um, you know the election is um, in the former Florida primary. So um, another issue that I'm also concerned about is kind of what we've been seeing in some of the seven states, such as Louisiana, Texas, Tennessee, and South Carolina, about um, kind of discriminating on the basis of age with their mail-in ballots, um, with young voters needing a more specific excuse oftentimes than older than the older population in order to receive these mail-in ballots. So um, in the short term, where do you think these decisions lie? And do you think the Roberts courts will take up and I guess decide some of these issues before the 2020 election? So I'm glad we're talking about voting rights because this is an issue where the chief justice, even though he kind of crossed over ideological lines on the mm -hmm. DACA decision or the abortion decision or the Title VII decision, has not at all been open-minded or receptive to voting rights challenges, even where the states offer what I think are extremely protectual reasons for enforcing some of the more draconian voting restrictions, even in the face of the pandemic. The Supreme Court has already heard three voting rights challenges this past term, but the Supreme Court here these cases on what are called on what is called the shadow docket. So these cases are decided not after full briefing or oral, or oral arguments. Instead, what happens is that parties file essentially applications for emergency relief from the Supreme Court, asking the Supreme Court to pause a lower court decision that either upholds or enjoins a state law. So there was one decision involving Wisconsin where uh, federal trial court and a court of appeals actually loosened Wisconsin's absentee voting restrictions in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic for the Wisconsin State Supreme Court election, as well as the presidential primary because of the overwhelming request of absentee ballots and the declining number of poll workers, the absentee ballots were not being processed in accordance with the state's deadlines. And the decreased number of poll workers resulted in the closure of more polling places, primarily in black communities. And so the combination of all of these things led the district court and the court of appeals to say, look, we're going to loosen the absentee ballot restrictions to allow more people to vote safely, the Supreme Court put that, hold it, put that ruling on pause. And we saw the effects of that decision with these massive lines in Milwaukee and elsewhere of people wearing masks, just waiting to vote, again, risking their lives to do so. Something similar happened with a district court decision out of Alabama where the district court loosened some of Alabama's restrictions on absentee voting. Again, something similar happened in Florida, though that was not about the coronavirus pandemic. That was about the reenfranchisement of people who have served their sentences following felony convictions. And I think it's extremely likely that there will be other voting rights cases that make their way to the court in the form of these emergency applications before the 2020 election. It's also very possible there will be cases that make their way to the court after the 2020 election, challenging counting of absentee ballots along the lines yeah. of Bush versus Gore or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I guess speaking hypothetically, like, um, could there be a decision from these states, I guess, to restrict some of these voting rights, um, uh, I guess, let's say like a day or two before the election, and then um, people won't, I guess, uh, people, it'll take people by surprise, I guess. So 
most states do not change their voting restrictions right before an election. I think what we are seeing now is states insisting on enforcing their voting rights, their voting restrictions in the face of the pandemic or selectively providing accommodations such as allowing all voters above certain ages to vote absentee in the coronavirus pandemic, but not allowing others. Um, some of those changes are happening somewhat close to the primaries. So the restrictions on what voter ages can get access to absentee ballots, those happen in somewhat close proximity to the primary. Um, but it's not clear that there will be additional changes states would make um, besides closing polling places in the wake of the pandemic um, in the immediate lead up to the election. So to kind of close off this discussion, um, we kind of want to touch upon like this moment that we find ourselves in, you know, in this fight for racial justice. And I think when there's a real calling for um, public service, and since you teach law school and interact with many students, um, is there anything you'd say to someone who may be thinking of going to law school or um, anything you'd say to any young person um, like myself or any college students who may want to make a difference in a moment when there is this real calling for uh, public service and leadership? Vote encourage other people to vote, encourage other people to register to vote, mm -hmm. vote, remind people to vote. And, um, you know, once you are kind of in power, I think it's extremely important to do a series of reforms that are good for the health of our democracy, make voting easier, make it more accessible, ensure that people who are not represented have a say in politics and get to vote. I think that those are the things that are most important and that people should be focusing on. Definitely great advice. Such great advice. And I think it's the consistent advice that all of our guests yes. have had. Um, I would add, be informed, listen to podcasts like this about what <laughs> the issues are, listen to your podcast. Uh, these are important ways to be informed so that when you vote, you vote based on information. Uh, but before we close out, I wanted to point out two things. One, the uh, Florida primary, I believe, is not till mid-August, so it's a few weeks away yet. Mm -hmm. um, but also that there are organizations that are now raising funds in order to pay off the fines of felons so that the uh, felons who have been empowered by the change in Florida Constitution will be able to exercise their right to vote. And we will post on our website um, the link to that organization for anybody who would like to contribute some money to assure that uh, people in Florida who have been convicted of crimes but have served their punishment uh, can vote. I think that's really an important thing. Um, so one last question for you is, uh, is there anything that you would like to add, any particular issue that you think uh, anybody listening to this should know before they exercise their right to vote? Gosh, that is a tough one. Um, you know, I would just underscore, again, the importance of the Supreme Court, particularly on issues of voting rights. Imagine that President Biden wins in 2020. Um, I think that there is a very real danger that this court would unwind some of the electoral reforms that a Biden administration and a Democratic Congress would want to do, such as making absentee voting easier or doing automatic voter registration. Um, or limiting states' abilities to do voter purges. And so keeping the attention on the Supreme Court is, I think, really important for the health of our democracy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for the health of Justice Ginsburg and Justice Breyer yes. and all the other liberal members of the court, 
we wish them well. I, I mean, we wish all the members of the court well. <laughs> I'm not suggesting anything else. All of them should uh, live good lives. Uh, but I hope that the next appointment to the Supreme Court is in a Biden administration. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you very much for thank being you. here. You've been terrific. And as more cases come up that are of crucial importance to our audience, we'd love to have you back to talk about them. That would be awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. So we hope you listening also enjoyed this episode. Be sure to follow us on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and be sure to like us and rate us on Apple Podcasts to support our future episodes. And send any suggestions, ideas for future topics and speakers you'd like to see via jail, myself, or our website. Thanks for listening and see you on our next episode.